This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary from our regular weekday chapel service. BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles. We are committed to the authority and inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures and to making disciples for Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. Well, good morning. What is such a treat for me to to be here. I was talking to my mom, and I am delighted to have her with me. She's been my mom all 43 years of my life, <laughs> and uh, uh, but she uh, uh, has also been a good godly mom, and uh, for that I, I give praise to the Lord. And, and I was, was, we were talking, when we were waiting for chapel to start, we were talking about whether or not this is the building in which Dad received his his diploma or his degree and uh, maybe one of you can confirm that but I believe it was back in 1980 uh, my father got his master's degree from here and then uh, a few years ago in 2012 uh, actually a month after he passed away I got mine so it's kind of bittersweet you know when you put those pieces together but it is a delight for me to be able to be here this morning and just to, to share a little bit with you uh, from God's word and and I'm going to break every expository preaching rule that I was ever taught uh, in seminary. And, uh, and I want to preach about a principle from Scripture uh, more so than, and do a, a, you know, than expound a passage. And, uh, and that principle, I think we find the principle all throughout Scripture. And that's the principle of, of us passing along our faith. Um, we've, we've sung about it and we talk about it. We talk about evangelism. We talk about discipleship. And, uh, and, and we know down deep in our heart that every believer has the responsibility of passing along the faith. Uh, when you look in the Old Testament, I mean, the Lord establishes through the Levitical offerings, through the sacrificial system. I mean, everything that, that was necessary for him to, to give to the Israelites, for them to be able to pass that faith along to their children, he did. He instructed them to write those scriptures on their hearts, their heads, you know, their hands, to put it in front of their children and to set memorial stones to remind them of all the good things that God had done for them. And when we look in the New Testament, we find the, the Great Commission, where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then that is also taught in, in Mark where Jesus says, or the Bible says that he ordained 12, that they should do two things. That they should be with him, and that he could send them out to preach. And if you want to open your Bibles, you can look at, with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 2. Because we know that the Apostle Paul continued those same lines. In other words, when, when the Apostle Paul received what he received from the Lord, what the Apostle Paul received from other apostles and then from his own private time, he passed it along. And especially in the context of 2 Timothy, we find that he was passing along the faith and that he instructed that. So I want to read one verse, and then we're going to kind of look at this principle. And let me go ahead and, and set a context, okay? Set a background. 
The whole time I was working on my master's, I heard probably three or four different instructors who said, we want to prepare you for studying at the next level. And so that kind of stuck in my mind. And so when I began to conclude my studies here, I began to think, what am I going to do for the next level? If there is such a thing as a next level. And, and so I began to evaluate that. Well, I took a degree path that I'm working on currently. Been studying it about three years. And the whole, really 75% of, of what this program is, is, has been a critique of theological education on both sides. What are the pros? What are the cons? What are the, the benefits of seminary? What are the benefits of church base? What are the benefits of, of doing things in community versus individual learning? And so it, it's forced me really to evaluate my time in the seminary. And what I hope to achieve this morning is, is by looking at this principle in the context of being a theological student, there are three things that I wish I would have known that I've learned since graduating, that I think if I would have known them before coming to seminary, it would have exponentially enhanced my learning capacity in the classroom. At least the ability to apply that once I got out of the classroom. Uh, we've all heard, heard the jokes, right, about sem seminary. I know when I was pastoring my first church, you can't find it unless you're going deer hunting, but it's in the middle of the woods in Ross and Arkansas, and three different people said, you're not going to go down there to Texas to that cemetery, are you, and let them kill you? You know, of course, they were serious. And, you know, my dad was a seminary graduate, and, and, and I was, you know, really wanted to learn. And, and even when I was pastoring outside of Forest City, just 30 miles from, from Memphis, at Mid-America, I had a friend that was going, and he was a Southern Baptist pastor, and he and I were about the same age. And he said, you know, he said, I am surrounded by some of the greatest preachers, I am surrounded by some of the deepest theological minds expounding some of the most profound concepts of God's Word. And he said, but Brother Michael, I'm going to be honest. He said, I am spiritually more dry now than I ever have been in my life. Now, I don't know the reason for that. But when we look at theological education, it should be a spiritual experience for us. We're not in a competition to see who has the highest cognitive ability, the most academic ability. We're here because we want to learn what to pass along. Timothy said the things that thou, I mean, Paul said to Timothy, the things that thou hast heard of, of me among many witnesses, commit thou to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so we come to seminary, hopefully, I mean, I know we all have different reasons, but many of us came to seminary wanting to learn what to pass along and how to pass it along, to get better equipped at passing along the faith so that we, we become a part of that long line of people who have been faithful to pass along the faith to us. I mean, when you think about the, faith, the fact that we are now 2,000 years removed from the life of Jesus Christ and yet we're still preaching Jesus, that is a pretty remarkable thing. And yet that depended on men and women being serious about taking God's Word and putting that into the hands of other people who then took it and put it into the hands of other people who then took it and put it into the hands of other people so that we became a long line of men and women who heard the Gospel and responded to the Gospel and now we are responding to the call of preaching and teaching the Gospel. So what is it that I could have learned before seminary that would have enhanced my ability to maximize, if you will, my time at seminary. Well, three things. 
First of all, and we will come back to this passage, but, but first of all, I think I wish I would have understood the nature of theological education. Exactly what it was that I was, what I needed to get out of my classes when I came to a theology class. Theology used to be, in the early days, it was described as a habitus. And one definition that somebody said that I really think is, is, to me, it really hits the heart of it. It says that theology is the orientation of the soul around the things of God for the purpose of acquiring divine wisdom, which every believer needs regardless of their vocation in life. So in other words, in the early days, theology was looked at as that aspect of me coming to know God in a deeper, more intimate way so that I could apply divine wisdom to every single aspect of my life, whether I was a butcher, whether I was a baker, whether I was a pastor, or whether I was a mother trying to raise children. Theology should help me to apply divine wisdom. When you look at the book of Proverbs, the whole book of Proverbs, Proverbs is wisdom geared and designed to help us live successful lives in this world. Theology is not an abstract concept that is only to be debated by the most brilliant of minds. It is something that we are to apply to our everyday lives. And the concept of that, though, changed. As we go down the historical timeline, as you get closer, at least in, in Western theological education, when you got closer to the Enlightenment, there was more influence from Germany. There was more influence from rationalistic thinking. All of a sudden, they begin to divide theology from being a habitus of the soul and turning it into an academic discipline. And eventually it got broken into Schleiermarker's fourfold pattern, you know, where you have church history and you have dogma and you have Bible and you have pastoral ministry. And, and then they began to ask this question, is theology a philosophy or is theology a science? How do we categorize theology? Where do we put it? What book do we put it in? And, and, and particularly, how do we study that? Well, the further we go along, what we find is that men eventually began to say, well, theology and theological education should prepare people just like doctors and lawyers and teachers. And so it became a purely academic, not in every case, okay? I'm not throwing a carte blanche across, across everybody or indicting our seminary. I want you to know that. But it became overall an academic pursuit. To where the most brilliant of minds could, could argue the minutest of details. But the consequence of that, and one guy put it brilliantly. He said, as a result of the academic disciplining of theology, the more divided it became, the more it lost its soul. So instead of theology for many people becoming something that brought us closer to God, it became battlegrounds for warfare. I remember my last class on campus, my last master's in motion class. We had Dr. Al Moeller who came. Man, he was a gifted speaker, wonderful preacher. And then in class we were studying special issues in soteriology. And Dr. South put on the board, he said, Okay, here are, and I believe it was nine parts of our salvation. He said, in the whole week, all, all we did was debate what was the order of those nine parts of our salvation. From conviction to, you know, conversion to faith. You can imagine the wars that took place in that classroom. And I wish, honestly, and I'm speaking personally, 
I wish I would have understood what theology should have done for me. Because to be honest with you, all that was was an argumentative class, an, an exercise in how to debate and, and try to use logic to overcome your enemy. That's not what theology is about. Theology is not about someone taking a three-month course in systematic theology and all of a sudden they're on Facebook and they're bashing everyone else who doesn't believe the exact same way they do. That has nothing to do with spiritual theology. I mean, it, it is preposterous. The wars that we get into when we start debating the, the doctrines of grace or whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian or whether, whether you're a dispensationalist or a covenant theologian. I mean, you can go down the lines with all the titles and all the divisions. But the main question, and what, when you look at the Bible, what really happened in theology with Paul was that it brought people closer to God. And it also united the body of Christ. I mean, think with me for just a moment what Paul did in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3. I mean, in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, he gives a brilliant discourse on the church. Clearly defining what the church is and, and, and how, they, how she is to operate. And, and to be honest, when I was in seminary after studying this passage, I would have been arguing, well, was that a local church or a universal church? But that's not what Paul did. What Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, he erupts in praise. I mean, he teaches deep theology. Deep theology about the church. The spiritual nature of it. And then he says, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. I mean, his theology brought him to a point where he was overflowing with praise for the Almighty. And this is not the only occasion in Scripture where he does it. He often gives a detailed theological treatise which brings him to a doxology of praise. You see, that's the nature and the essence of what theological education should do for us. But secondly, I wish I'd understood the role of the theological student. Because we're too quick to blame our professors and we're too quick to blame seminaries for what they haven't done or what they can't do. We need to understand the role of what the learner is. And I didn't understand that when I was in seminary. The role of a learner is to take an active part in receiving and applying the education that they receive from their instructors. Now, Alan Thomas, <clears throat> excuse me, in his book Beyond Education gives eight characteristics of a learner. Wonderful characteristics of helping to understand the difference between education and learning. And there is a difference. And I'm not talking about just, you know, somebody saying, well, he received a good learning. That's improper grammar. That's improper English. I'm talking about education as a noun is something we receive. Learning is a verb. It is active. And it is something that we have to do. We have to engage in order to maximize the education that is being offered to us. And he says four things. He says, number one, learning is action. It's something that we do rather than something we receive. But he also says learning is individual. 
And so that means I have to assume my responsibility for what I'm going to learn in any given context. Jeff Swartz said one time, a broken watch is right twice a day. So you can learn something from anybody. You can learn what to do or what not to do. But it's our responsibility to assume responsibility that when we go into a learning context and our professors have prepared their lessons and they have studied and they have developed them and they have done their best to put them in a way that that they're going to be able to transmit that into a way that hopefully you'll be able to transmit to others, but still the responsibility rests in in the mind, in the heart, and in the decision of the learner. Now, to be honest, by the time we get closer to that that degree, most of us are just ready to get through with it, right? But that really doesn't help us. The learner assumes responsibility because his learning or his education and his ability to apply that is individual. Yes, it's influenced by other people. That means the cultural context even of a classroom affects how you can learn. And it is a response to stimuli. So what are those four characteristics? I'm not going to give all eight, but those four characteristics mean your teachers provide stimuli. They do their best to provide stimuli. But they cannot apply that to each and every person separately. The learner has to do that. He has to assume responsibility for his or her own learning, and then they have to respond to that stimuli. And that's how they maximize their ability to learn. Now think about why you're in class. Timothy was not worried about flunking. He wasn't worried about getting an F on his term paper. He wasn't worried about that. I'm sure he didn't want to disappoint Paul in his training. But he really wasn't worried about that. He was worried about the life and death consequences of him not being prepared for his ministry. You see, when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he was fading away. His time of martyrdom was near. And yet Timothy was there at Ephesus trying to battle a growing growing group of Gnostics who were trying to overtake and infiltrate the church with false doctrine. That's why Paul is teaching him to exhort with sound doctrine. That's why he tells him the things that you've heard from me. Commit to faithful men. Why did they have to be faithful? They weren't swayed by other ideologies. And so for Timothy, it was a matter of life and death. And I want to tell you, when we leave seminary and we enter into the ministry, it is a matter of life and death for us as well. And it's a matter of life and death for those that we are preaching and teaching to. The rise of cults, the evangelistic fervor of the cults, and even the evangelistic fervor of of Islam today illustrates that we need men and women who are are committed to the faith and who are ready and prepared and have learned and have, have qualified themselves, not in a spiritual sense, but in an academic sense, to be able to defend the faith. Now, I didn't understand that. When I sat in that classroom, I thought, Now, what he's saying has nothing to do with what I'm going to need. Any of you ever been guilty of that? Mm -hmm. Don't lie, you're in chapel. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But when we look at it from the fact of the learner is the one who really has the largest responsibility, then it heightens what I bring to a learning situation. Lastly, 
The first one was, I wish I'd understood the nature of theological education. I wish I would have understood my role as a learner. But lastly, I wish that I really would have prepared myself for taking what I learned and being able to apply it before I graduated. Now, I'm going to just simplify this. I'm going to give you the ABCs of what I wish I'd have done and what we need to do. Number one, if we look at the passage where, where Timothy is told by Paul, I've already read it, you know, that you're supposed to take these things and commit them to faithful men. That means, first of all, I've got to assume responsibility for my role in learning. I've got to assume responsibility in my role in that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and 2. I have to assume my role in the Great Commission. If Jesus has commanded us to make disciples of all nations as He did in Matthew chapter 28, I have to assume responsibility. And that needs to take place while I'm studying, not after I'm studying. We can't sit in a classroom and say, and say, you know what, well, when I graduate, then I'm going to begin to evangelize. Or when I graduate, then I'm going to begin to disciple. Or when I graduate, then I'm going to begin to teach other people. Our responsibility is now. Scripture is not, is not given to us and says, okay, before you graduate or after graduate. No, this is a Christian responsibility, a principle that is written throughout the Word of God. And sooner or later, if we're going to be faithful to the Word of God, we have to assume responsibility and say, that passage is speaking to me. I am the Timothy in that passage. I'm one of the faithful men in that passage who's going to pass that along to other people. Or I am the Paul in that passage. And every one of us has a place and a role to fill in that principle. And no one else can make us do that. We've got to assume that responsibility. So we accept our responsibility and assume our responsibility. Why? Because we need to bring that responsibility to the classroom with us. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Two things. We need to build a matrix. Every class should have be, know, and do goals that we develop even for ourselves. How is this going to change who I am? How is this going to change what I know? And how is this going to change what I'm able to do? And so we have this matrix going into the, into the classroom. And if you like, you know, if you prefer the, the character growth and the cognitive ability and the psychomotor skills, if you prefer those kind of words, however you want to phrase it, the fact of the matter is, is that everything I'm learning should affect me holistically. If I'm studying theologically correctly, it ought to, it ought to affect me spiritually. My spiritual growth or, or my character ought to grow spiritually. My ability should grow. My knowledge should grow. But not only do I need to build that matrix for myself, but I need to bring my context into that classroom. Let me, let me illustrate. Now we have a variety of cultures. We have a variety of even first languages in here. We have a variety of learning styles. And this is what happens in Western education, and it is documented. The more education we, we receive the less of an oral learner we become and the more of a visual learner we become. We go from being illiterate to non-literate to highly literate. And usually, 
Probably 99% of seminary professors have high academic qualifications and they have spent thousands of hours studying God's Word, studying books, reading, and their learning style is drastically different than the learning style of someone who is in Africa or a a first-generation Latin American who even lives here in North America. The way we learn and the way we transmit that is different after we've had years of education than it is for people who have not had education. And also, the more education we have, the more linear in in our thought patterns we become, the more logical in our thought patterns, not that other people are illogical, it's just that we rely more on logic. A plus B equals C. And we think in that way. But not every culture thinks that way. Now, if you're preparing to go to Japan, you need to understand the context of the learners that you're going to be ministering to. If you're ministering in in a Hispanic context here in the United States, you need to understand the learning, the best way that they learn. They are more relational in their learning ability. And if you can put them in community, they are much more, or they are much Uh, more readily able, just put it that way, to be stimulated to learn. But you take an American, we prize our individuality. And we become less rational, or less less rational, less relational. (laughs) Correct that. Some may argue that. Maybe we do become less rational. But everything changes. Now, it it is impossible... Let me repeat this. It is impossible for a professor to be able to imitate every single context that exists in his classroom. And a white professor who grew up in South Arkansas may have an absolute brilliant mind and understanding of God's truth. But that does not mean that he knows how to translate that into an African-American culture. He might, but it may be very difficult. So does that mean we can't learn from him? Absolutely not. What that means is that as a learner, since I am responsible for my learning, I bring my context to my classroom. And I take what he tells me and I'm thinking the whole time, how is this going to, how can I take this and put it in a way that I can transmit this? You see in that classroom, they're serving as your Paul and you're serving as the Timothy. Now you've got to take these things, but you've got to put them in a different context. It's not the professor's responsibility to recreate every potential context. It's impossible. They can't do it. Even the most brilliant teachers can't do that. But brilliant learners can. And you take that. And when I began our Bible Institute in, in, in Little Rock, I got really frustrated because that's exactly what I did. I took the way I had been taught and I began trying to teach that way. And it didn't work. And so then I thought, well, I just make it simpler. And so I got down as simple as I possibly could, and I still couldn't get through to them until I began to understand that their context and my context, their learning context and my learning context were two different worlds. 
So I had to translate and I had to exegete their culture so that I could put it into their culture. And so if we're going to really maximize our seminary education, we've got to A, accept the responsibility for that, assume our role in 2 Timothy 2 too, but we've also got to bring that context and build that context into our learning environment, into our situation, knowing that we're leaving here to go into the battlefield or we're already in the battlefield and we need this to be able to apply now. Now, how do we do that? And then lastly, and I'll close with this. Lastly, basically, is we just construct a plan. I think every seminary student should do three things. They should develop a lifelong plan for the study of God's Word. A lifelong plan. Not just this book here, this book there, this piece there, but really what does the whole Scripture say? And that takes a lifetime to master. And when we accept that, it humbles us so that we're not so ready to argue with everybody about what we think we know. But secondly, we ought to develop a lifetime development plan to where we're continually growing in our Christian faith and in our personal development. But we ought to begin to be intentional in constructing a plan for applying what we're learning into our immediate context. Your professor can't do that. Only you can do that. You take what God has given to them that they've passed on to you and then you translate that into your culture and your context and you build a plan. And whether that means it's church-based, whether it's through the Sunday school, whether that mean, whatever that means in your context, you have a plan for passing along the faith. You know, one day we're going to be in front of the Lord and I want to hear these words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But if I've not been faithful of passing along the faith to those whom I'm working with, it's going to be hard to hear those words. And God has given you guys an an incredible opportunity to learn some deep theological things, practical, academic, spiritual, all of it. But until we assume responsibility, accept responsibility, bring it into our world, and then construct a plan to put it in the hands of others, then we're going to go away from seminary. And like so many people do, they say, I'm not sure why I went to seminary. The average MDiv costs between fifty dollars to $90,000 in the United States. Not here. Thank God for the help that Dr. Holmes and the seminary gave me to where I didn't have student debt. But there are a lot of seminaries that do. And there are people who get out with enormous student debt and they look back on their seminary education and they wonder, was it really worth it? It can be. It can be worth every penny. And it can be worth every minute. And it can be worth every book you read and every report you write. But it depends on what you take into that class. A lot more of that depends on on what you take into it than even the teacher does as to what you get out of it. Let's bow our heads, would you? Father, we love you so much. And Lord, we readily admit that 
but just to be able to, to be around other brothers and sisters in Christ and, and to discuss and to learn and to think and to, to grow. Father, we thank you for creating us with that capacity. But Lord, we also realize and also understand that we, we have so far to go to truly understand who you are, to draw close to you, to become truly Christ-like. So Father, I pray that, that in all of our education, we would focus on drawing close to you, that we would focus on learning all that we can, and that we would focus on how to take that and put it into the hands of other people who'd be able to translate that to others. Father, use us for your honor and your glory. I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, Brother Hyde. That's some good uh, good word for us. And I hope that uh, that stays with you. You know, the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I can help but think about that, your emphasis about our spiritual lives and seeking those things, not just the academic pursuit. Very appropriate for us. And uh, I know you appreciate Brother Height coming, his mother, Brother Garcia. And uh, we're going to be dismissed, but please come and welcome them. But uh, express your appreciation to, to Brother Height. Thank you. We're dismissed.